It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions. After the podcast, check out everything ChristianQuestions.com has to offer. Also see our weekly video series releases at ChristianQuestions.com slash YouTube. Here's your hosts, Rick and Jonathan. Mignon McLaughlin once said, The proud man can learn humility, but he'll be proud of it. I'm Rick, and this is not your typical Christian commentary as we look at Bible-related topics from a different perspective. Joining me as always is Jonathan, my co-host for more than two decades. This podcast centers on godly principles, family values, and honest dialogue in a politically free zone. Jonathan, what is our topic for today's episode? Can humility keep me from success? Our theme text, Luke 14, verse 11. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Joining us also today is Julie. Hi, I'm happy to be here. And I don't think we've ever discussed today's parable on this podcast, so this will be something new. I'm excited. It is something new, and coming up in this new podcast today, status and recognition are important in a competitive world. Shouldn't Christians be at the top of all of this? After all, we stand for righteousness and integrity. Let's find out what Jesus says in about 15 minutes. So if humility is such a big Christian attribute and self-assertion is such a necessary approach to get ahead, how can we ever compete? We're going to share some ideas with you on this in about 30 minutes. And finally, what should our Christian definition of success look like when we are out there in the everyday work world? We're going to talk about this in detail in about 45 minutes. But first, first let's get some context and see how Jesus set himself up to be noticed. It is a competitive world out there. I need to focus and to stop at nothing to make my mark. I will apply myself to get the job I want, the life I desire, and the status I deserve while engaging in the leisure and entertainment that I crave. (laughs) While this description can be of someone who is truly success-motivated and has specific goals, it can also be a warning for us as well. We as Christians should applaud motivation, while at the same time being alert to fend off the destructive poisons of pride and ego. But how do we do both and still have a chance at succeeding in this world? Is it our Christian destiny to be continuously overlooked for that promotion, that opportunity, or that position? As usual, applying Christian principle of humility in this world is, can be, bewildering, and it can be discouraging as well. However, once we get our arms around how Jesus handled this, the whole confusing matter becomes so much more clear. So that's what we really want to look at is how do we get our arms around humility and success and can the two go together? What we're going to do is we're going to focus on a parable Jesus gave at the home of a powerful Pharisee about being guests at a meal for our humility and success lessons for today. This parable was an unmistakable and direct reference to what Jesus was observing at this very Sabbath meal he was attending. So first, we're going to start with the immediate context of the parable. So Jonathan, the parable is in Luke 14, verses 1 to 11. Let's just start with verse 1. It happened that when he went into the house of one of the leaders of the Pharisees on the Sabbath to eat bread, they were watching him closely. Okay, they were watching him closely. We want to get into what that actually means, but let's set a little bit of the context for this meal. Uh, Jonathan, we, uh, Julie, we've got a, a, um, some commentary from the pulpit commentary to get us some context. The house into which he entered this Sabbath belonged to one who was a leading member of the Pharisee party, probably an influential rabbi, a man of great wealth, or a member of the Sanhedrin to eat bread on the Sabbath day. Oh, sorry, to eat bread on the Sabbath day as a guest was a usual practice, and such entertainments on the Sabbath day were very unusual. They were often luxurious and costly. They were very usual. Sorry, this is what they usually did. (laughs) So this was a big deal. This was a fancy meal that Jesus is invited to, and he's invited along with other Pharisees, other people of great stature in the religious world. Now, in the first verse of Luke 14, it said they were watching Jesus closely. Jonathan, let's get into that. What does it mean that they were watching him closely? To inspect alongside, that is, note insidiously or scrupulously. So they were watching him almost, and I'm going to make it, I'm going to push the envelope a little, 
almost fiendishly. They're watching Ooh. him. Okay. Why are they watching him that way? Well, there's, there's a couple of reasons. First, they were perpetually suspicious of Jesus, and they're looking to set him up for a fall. This is not new. They've done this before. Jonathan, let's go to Luke 6, verse 7. And the scribes and Pharisees watched him, whether he would heal on the Sabbath day, that they might find an accusation against him. Okay, so back in Luke 6, they watch him. Same word, that insidious looking to try to set him up. And then the second reason that they're watching him so closely is just a few weeks before our featured parable in Luke 14, Jesus was at the home of another Pharisee. And in this dinner conversation, it did not go well for the Pharisees. We're just going to drop in on a few pieces, Luke eleven thirty-seven through 40. Now when he had spoken, a Pharisee asked him to have lunch with him, and he went in and reclined at the table. When the Pharisee saw it, he was surprised that he had not first ceremonial washed before the meal. But the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and the platter, but inside of you, you are full of robbery and wickedness. You foolish ones, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? So, so let's get into this just a little bit really quickly here. The Pharisee, when Jesus didn't do the ceremonial washing, a very specific kind of ceremonial washing, he's looking at Jesus like, like what, what, you're eating this meal and you're dirty? Really? He's got this condescension toward Jesus. So Jesus says, hey, you know what, you're a hypocrite. So now he's at the guy's house for dinner, and, and, and this is what he says. I mean, there's, there's some great boldness here. And I wanted to just continue and add verse 43 from the New Living Translation that says, How terrible it will be for you Pharisees, for how you love the seats of honor in the synagogues and the respectful greetings from everyone as you walk through the markets. Because these Pharisees, they loved feeling super important, and this contrasts with Jesus' humility even though he had throngs of people following him, calling out his name like a celebrity. And, but again, he's attacking the outward look because the inward heart didn't match. That's what Jesus is about. And so he goes on with several other woes to the Pharisees, and then it comes down to this in Luke 11, 45 to 47. One of the lawyers, that was an expert in the Jewish law, said to him in reply, Teacher, when you say this, you insult us too. But he said, Woe to you lawyers as well, for you weigh down men with burdens hard to bear, while you yourselves will not even touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets, and it was your fathers who killed them. Ouch! Now, they say to him, Teacher, you're insulting them. That means you're insulting us. He says, Yeah, well, woe to you, because you're also hypocrites. They, the, these, these doctors of the law, they were looking to find fault, just like the Pharisees, as Jesus obviously had no regard for the fabricated piety that they had. I mean, the, the, the doctors of the law, he's saying, you won't even with one little finger touch the burdens that you put upon other people. What is wrong with you? You should not be doing that if you are representing godliness. Where is your head and where is your heart? They are at odds with Jesus, and they have respect for him. They did invite him to meals, yeah. but it wasn't genuine. And Jesus is not afraid to put things in order, either in a firm way or in a very gentle way. And, and I think that's, that's important. He wasn't afraid to be firm in this con uh, condition because they were, calling, they, they were condescending to him, and he brought out their hypocrisy. And G Jesus did what he needed to do. And, and there's something very, very special about that kind of humility that has that kind of courage. Okay, so we've got that. That's the backdrop. So let's get back to our parable in Luke chapter 14. Remember, they're watching him closely. Jonathan, let's just go to verse 2. And there in front of him was a man suffering from dropsy. Okay, there in front of him. We're going to get to dropsy in a second. There in front of him. The, the word literally means, and look, or behold, in front of him, a man suffering from dropsy. So the, the, the situation is, is kind of unfolding that. And, oh, look who's here, this man who's got this disease. So first of all, what is dropsy? Well, a disease produced by the accumulation of water in various parts of the body, very distressing and commonly incurable. Now that dropsy, that's an old-fashioned word for edema, that's the swelling of soft tissues or body cavity with fluid. We know this from congestive heart failure, where the heart pumps improperly and blood collects in the lower extremities. 
We have angioedema in my family. That's severe swelling under the skin. So it'd be noticeable that something is wrong with this man who, air quote, suddenly shows up at this fancy event. Right. So we have to ask, was having this man in front of Jesus a coincidence? Why would such a man be at such an elegant event? Was he maybe a member of the Pharisee's family or was he planted there by the Pharisees to trap Jesus? Because remember, what day is today? It's the Sabbath. What aren't you supposed to do on the Sabbath? Work. They were sticklers about very specific things. It looks like they're trying to set him up. Now, Jesus sees what is likely this attempt to trap him. So he gently and wisely addresses this. And Jesus, I'm telling you, there's wisdom on top of wisdom on top of wisdom. Listen to how he manages this. Luke 14, verses 3 to 6. And Jesus answered and spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they kept silent. And he took hold of him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which one of you have a son or an ox fallen to a well and will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? And they could make no reply to this. Okay, so there's three basic points that we want to make here as we expand how Jesus managed this situation. Julie, first point. Jesus asks asks these experts regarding healing on the Sabbath, but they don't respond. And he heals and sends the healed man on his way. And he again asks for an explanation of the law and gets no answer. Rick, why do you think they're so uncharacteristically quiet when Jesus says, should we not heal? Well, first of all, just remember, the Pharisees are the ones that are used to asking Jesus the questions. They're used to setting him up. So, teacher, what do you think about this? Because they have an agenda. Well, they had their agenda, but they didn't use it with words. They used it with a person. And so Jesus understands, recognizes, and then asks them the question. And to them, I think, this is a Rick opinion, I think they look at this as, this has got to be a trick. i got to be careful because I know him. He is smart, and he's going to twist whatever it is. So we just better be quiet. But there's no answer. So Jesus does what he does. He heals, he gives to somebody who has a need, then he sends him on his way. It's another reason I think it was a setup, because he sends him on his way. He didn't say, now go take your seat at the feast. He sent him on his way. Good point. Oh, I like that point. (laughs) So, and look, all of this is even before we get to the parable. Even before the actual parable, what we're seeing are tremendous lessons of humility and action being revealed, not only in this Pharisee's house, But in the weeks before, Jesus is following the will of the Father and doing whatever the Father says. And there's a great humility in his courage as he does this. So, Jonathan, we're going to look at success through humility. What about that in terms of Jesus right here? Jesus is our humility model. He always humbly did his Father's will. If it meant calling out hypocrisy, he did it. If it meant seeing through a trap and acting mercifully, he did it. If it meant opening up the true meaning of Scripture to a closed-minded audience, he did it. Now, I wasn't initially seeing how this was humble. You know, we see, we've, we've seen Jesus, he's bold, he's in their face, he's unabashedly strong, and fearless and humble don't seem to pair. But humility, I learned through this, isn't being silent or passive when it comes to speaking up for God, even if it changes our reputation or goes against our natural inclinations. Humility is being ready for God to use us to honor him in every situation. And I was thinking, Julie, there's strength in humility. When you look at Jesus, he showed strength through that humility. But the world doesn't see strength in humility. They look at it as weakness. Exactly, exactly, exactly. So Jesus, we've got this basis to look at him and see humility is a very strong approach to take in life but very unexpected for most people. So, you know, it's amazing how fearless Jesus was. He didn't back down when confronted or when they trapped him. So Jesus plowed through the test the Pharisees had set up. Where does our parable fit in? Well, with this kind of, this kind and merciful healing, Jesus now has the focused attention of everyone. As we're going to see, he will use that attention to teach a lesson in humble self-recognition. This lesson was just demonstrated by the Pharisees not answering Jesus' questions. They didn't learn the lesson, so Jesus is going to take another approach with them. 
interesting. He, he asked questions that could have opened up a conversation and a discussion and a humble realization of what was most important, but they wouldn't, they wouldn't enter into it. So Jesus looks for a different way to teach them. Now we get into what happens and the parable itself. Luke chapter 14, verses 7 through 9. And he began speaking a parable to the invited guests when he noticed how they had picked out the places of honor at the table, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for someone more distinguished than you may have been invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this man. And then in disgrace, you proceed to occupy the last place. Okay, so first thing is if you notice, he's watching what's happening. He's watching them vie for position. So he tells them a story. And he says, he uses the story, the example of a wedding feast. They're at a Sabbath feast. So it draws their attention away from what they're doing. It makes it more likely that they're actually going to listen to the story. Okay, so that's the first thing. Um, the, for, for a Christian, it's about their vying for position. And for a Christian, self-exaltation is a surefire way to be displeasing to our Father. Just ask Jesus. He'll tell you. It takes us out of our discipleship role. Jesus, here, it's interesting how he's talking to them about the, the humiliation of having to be demoted. He appeals to the basic human ego to make his point about accurately assessing your particular value. The recognition of others is important to our human nature. We desire it, uh, but it's how we pursue it is where we get in trouble. Now, allowing our recognition to come from the Father through our experiences is best. Yeah, and you're right. You nailed it down there. How we pursue that recognition is where we can either honor God or get into trouble. And Jesus is going to teach us how to appropriately pursue appropriate recognition to have appropriate honor at the appropriate time. There's a lot of conditions right there, if you noticed. It's got to be appropriate. So we're going to look at success through humility in a couple of different ways for the rest of the podcast. Each segment, we're going to look first at success toward God through humility, and then we're going to look at success in the real world through humility, and compare notes on those things. So, Jonathan, let's start with success toward God through humility with what we know so far about this parable. Our first object of success, know who you are and who you are not. Such knowledge requires clarity of heart and mind. With this honest and humble assessment in place, we can now begin to pay attention to our highest objective, honoring God. What do, what do we mean, know who you are and who you're not? These Pharisees, they were important people to Jewish life, and they acted like they were. So what went wrong? Well, first of all, they were important people, but they were unfortunately far more self-important than they were important. And if you look at what, how Jesus described them and how he attacked their stance, he was showing them that your self-importance has blown so far out of proportion, you've lost the value of your actual importance. So there's this pride factory that got way in the way. Know who you are and who you're not. You know, folks, look, we're, we're all different. Jonathan, you and I have been working together on this, on this podcast for just about 23 years now. Yes. I'm not you. Right. And you're not me. Correct. We have different sets of talents and abilities. Yes. I need you. And I need you. <laughs> and that's Aww. what it means. But, but see, folks, that, that's the, that, it is. That's the seriousness of this. Know who you are and who you're not. And when we understand that, then we can be contributory in whatever it is that we're looking at. Okay, so now let's look at Jesus' living example of knowing who he was. Now, because of Jesus, because Jesus was sure of who he was and what he came for, he always always did the highest right thing. We're going to go to the account of the raising of Lazarus. We're going to drop in right in the middle, John eleven thirty-eight 38 to 44. We'll just stop after verse, uh, verse 40. So Jesus, again being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, Remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? 
So they removed the stone. Okay, so Jesus is setting up this, this, this tremendous miracle. And when he says remove the stone, he meets resistance. It's like, what are you doing? The body's decaying. And Jesus' response is, it's the glory of God we're interested in here. Just remove the stone. Here's what happens next. And this is the important part. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it, so that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. The man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Well, Rick and Julie, uh, Jesus could have done the miracle and taken the recognition to himself, but he didn't. In contrast, Moses hit the rock as if the miracle of the water was from him. And that's why the humblest man on earth, Moses, wasn't permitted to enter the promised land. And it says that in Numbers 12, 3, that Moses was the humblest man on earth. So if the humblest man on earth at that time could get into such trouble... We're we, in trouble, yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah, we're naturally in trouble. I mean, that's really what it boils down to. But here's, here's the beauty of this. There, 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 and, and, and Jonathan, you, you began to open this up. There's a subtle and powerful lesson in this vi- most, most dramatic of all of Jesus' miracles. He prays, but he prays out loud so that there would be no question that the source of this miracle comes from the Father. He says, Father... Thank you that you hear me. I know you always hear me. I'm saying it so they understand that this comes from you. God's humble son is wielding the greatest power any human could ever have, and he does it by making sure that God gets the credit. There is success through humility. You can't get more dramatic than that. What about us? We also need to know who we are and why we are sent. We're going to go to Romans chapter 12, verses 3 to 5, and this is going to give us a, a, a beginning sense of who we are in relation to one another. So Jonathan, let's do Romans um, chapter 12. Let's start with verse 3 to begin with. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Okay, so the first thing that the apostle says is you need to not think more highly than you ought to think, but use sound judgment. It doesn't mean that you think more lowly than you ought to think either. You need to use sound judgment as you look at your position. Humility, humility is accurately assessing who you are. You don't add and you don't subtract. You see reality as best as you can. And admittedly, it's hard to see ourselves exactly the way we are because we're biased about ourselves one way or another, okay? <laughs> it's, it, 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 it's hard. But this is a vital base to build from to do our best in this area because it reflects the reality of how God can use us. Yeah. Um, I have a quick quote from C.S. Lewis here. Um, Humility is not thinking less of yourself it's thinking of yourself less. I like <laughs> nice. that. And so it's kind of giving credit where credit's due because any good in us is by the grace of God. But Rick, you brought up a really good point about don't subtract too, because I think some people can be so humble that they feel they're so worthless that they're no good either. They, they, they can't help God in his mission either because they're just they're they're too humble. Can you be too humble? I guess is it, isn't that a false humility? Well, and, and I think I think Jonathan, I think that's it. I think that that's not real humility because humility is accurately understanding. Look, here's the bottom line. We're going to go over this. But if God called you, you have value. Amen. Stop the argument. You have value. You need to recognize that if God is working with you, it didn't like it's not like He made a mistake just in your case. Okay, that's just not the way it works. <laughs> Right. Okay, so now let's go back to Romans 12, and let's go to verses 4 and 5. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. See, here it is. Many members, one body. We've gone over these scriptures so many times, but it's so important. Accurate self-knowledge dictates our ability to be the properly functioning member of the body that Christ called us to be. The, you, to do your job, 
you need to know what your job is. You need to know who you are, okay? We have to have the, the willingness, whatever our self-knowledge reveals. And, and, and if we are revealed to have several talents, then our willingness needs to be to say, God, you've given me those several talents. What do I do? If our, if our, if our understanding of ourselves reveals not a whole lot of talents, but, but a real desire to serve, God, this is, this is what you've given me. How do I do it? How do I use it? This is how we get ourselves focused in. Now, let's look at the real world. How does this work in the real world? I'm going to ask this question every segment. How does humility in recognizing who we are provoke success? I think our natural inclination is, unfortunately, to compare ourselves with others. You know, what do you do for a living? What kind of car do you drive? How big is your house? We want to know that we are doing at least the same or better than our peer group. And while this might help us to motivate us to be better, study harder in school, or to work two jobs to feed our families, we really need to compare ourselves to Jesus for the proper perspective. And this will truly motivate us to serve others as we serve God, because that's what he did. And we're looking up to, it's kind of like looking up to our big brother in that way. So in the working world, this might translate to we aren't going to trample on others on our way up. We're going to be collaborative. We're going to give credit where credit is due. That doesn't happen often in the, in the working world. Right. And, that, and that, those things are hard to do in this world because of the pressure of the world. But again, that's what Jesus would do. Jesus would, and when you say compare yourself to Jesus, the idea is to compare yourself, like you said, as the big brother. You can't do what he did, but he can show you the way. He can show you the standard. That's the standard we strive for. So we want to give you three points here, folks, in terms of the real world about understanding who we are and who we are not. First, am I willing to recognize how often and how thoroughly pride has and can destroy lives? Let's look at Proverbs 16, verses 18 to 19. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. It is better to be humble in spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. Got to understand, it's better to resign yourself to the lowly than to get involved in an egotistical view of everything because there's too much danger and too much destruction inherent in there. Pride destroys lives. Look at people who are famous and look at when you finally reveal what their personal lives are often like. It's just a a massive destruction. Second point, do I want to be that person who gets ahead by misrepresenting anything? Proverbs 11, uh, verses 1 through 3. Let's start with verse 1. A false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. Do And we talked about this in one of our pre, uh, recent podcasts, the idea of having this complete honesty about the representation of things. Don't misrepresent. Don't skew. Don't exaggerate. Be real. Have integrity in these things. And third, am I willing to look at my endeavors through the lens, now here's the key, through the lens of a long-term God-honoring view? Will I simply act with integrity? You know, acting with integrity is not complex. It's simple. Do the right thing always in the right way, the best way you know how. Verse 2. Even when, even when no one's looking. Even, especially when no one's looking. Verse 2 of Proverbs 11. When pride comes, then comes dishonor. But with the humble is wisdom. The integrity of the upright will guide them, but the crookedness of the treacherous will destroy them. We need to understand who we are and who we're not. And if we are called to be followers of Jesus, honoring God through that following of Jesus, our standards will dictate how we approach success. And humility, by definition, is an integral part of that. So we talked about success toward God through humility. Now let's look at, wrap this up with success in the world through humility. Julie? Well, this is the same first object of success that we had towards God. Now in the world, it's, again, know who you are and who you are not. I will be honest with myself about myself so I can be positioned for whatever success God in his providence would want me to have. The key, everybody's vying for position when they want to be successful, right? Here's how a Christian vies for position in the world. We We'll be honest with ourselves, about ourselves, so we can be positioned for God's providence to bring us whatever success he deems necessary. So our vying for position is completely different. But I will tell you, in the long run, much, 
more effective than the other stuff. How we see our life and our role in it plays a massive part in how our experiences can move us forward. Once we understand ourselves, what do we do if those around us don't recognize our potential? (laughs) We imperfect humans are so insecure. The observations, opinions, and reactions of those around us can easily play a massive role in what we say, do, and even think. One of the important steps we need to learn to take is that of prioritizing how God's observations of us matter most now and forever. It's not just it matters in the long run. God's observations of us matter most now. We need to get that into our heads. So as we get back to the parable, Jesus continues the parable. You know, he talked about going to the lower seats, and he presents a solution to the overblown ego approach, because that's the default that we all go to. I've got to show how valuable I am. Let me, excuse me, let me elbow you so I can get ahead of you, so I can show you my value. Jesus' solution will prove to be a real test of character. So back to the parable, Luke chapter 14, verse 10. But when you arrive, are invited, go and recline at the last place, so that when the one who has invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the sight of all who are at the table with you. I, I can't help think but that place cards would have helped solve this problem. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but can't you see the Pharisees like switching the place cards around oh, no, <laughs> to get to no. the front? <laughs> but see, here, here's the problem. With place cards, what you would have had is these Pharisees looking at these things saying, I should be seated up higher. Who, who, who made these up? They just obviously mm. don't know me. You know, if, if, <laughs> if we have that egotistical approach, no matter what you do, it's still going to be there. So Jesus is, a, is approaching it by saying something very, very counterintuitive. Okay, here again, Jesus appeals to our human desire for recognition. However, he's, because he's saying you take the lower seat and then the host will say, oh, friend, what are you doing down there? Here, move up closer to me. However, the true humility that's here described should not be lost in the idea of a feigned humility for the purpose of personal honor, meaning that you could say, okay, I'll do what Jesus said. I know I'm great, so I'll take the lowest seat so I can show everybody how I am so worthy of being risen up from the dregs of the bottom of the barrel to up the top where I can shine. That's not what Jesus means. That's, that's the wrong kind of, that's not humility. That's just pride that's lost control. So what we need to do is understand Jesus is saying, literally, take a lower seat and just don't worry about it. He doesn't say that your friend is going to come and get you. He said he might, which means he might not. (laughs) Good point. And either way, we need to be content. So when we look at success toward God, now we're back toward God through humility. Jonathan, what do we find here? Our second object of success, be willing to be lowly and serve regardless of recognition or a lack of it. Such a posture requires determination and faith as our fleshly nature craves attention. Determined to be noticed by God and leave the rest. Determined to be noticed by God and leave the rest. We need to be willing to be lowly and serve recognition or not. That should be our objective. That's really what Jesus is showing us here. Now, let's look at Jesus' own example. One of the many, many, many examples of Jesus condescending to a low estate to fulfill God's will is shown to us in John 13, uh, verses 3 to 5, and then we're going to go to 13, 12 to 15. But you're all very familiar with this account, but there's profound lessons here of humility. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things in his hands and that he had come from the Father and was going back to God, got up from supper and laid aside his garments and taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So on this night, this last night before Jesus' crucifixion, he was determined to leave a powerful legacy of service behind for those who would represent him going forward. Jesus is carrying the weight of the world on his shoulders, literally. He is burdened with everything. And what does he do? He takes the time to wash their feet because he wants to set them in a pattern for serving one another 
in his absence, because that is what Christianity is supposed to look like. And so he does what is the most important thing, and he serves other in what is arguably his time of greatest need. We go to John 13, 12 to 15, where Jesus describes and, 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 and explains what he did. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should also do it as I did to you. So he's telling them, I am your Lord. You know that. Watch what I do, then live like I live. That's the success through humility toward God. He's showing us, he showed us every day of his life how to have success toward God through humility. So, so how do we find success as a disciple? Do what Jesus did, serve first and foremost. And this sets the tone of what Christianity would look like. You know, this kind of service is very unique. It is, and we are responsible to rise up to such lowly service. And that sounds contradictory, but think about it. You've got to rise up to the challenge of servitude. Julie, there's a great quote here, uh, Albert Einstein. Try not to become a person of success, but rather try to become a person of value. Nice. <laughs> and it just, it just helps us see things in, in the appropriate way. So we looked at an example of Jesus condescending in humility. Well, what about us? The Apostle Paul explains our lowly serving Christian approach in a very honorable way. And again, we're going to go to the example of the body of Christ, but we're going to bring out some very specific points that help us to see the depth of the honor of being whatever part of the body you may happen to be. We're going to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 18 to 26. Let's do 18, and 19, 18 through 20 to start. But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. If they were all one member, where would the body be? Uh, 20 also, Jonathan. Okay. But now there are many members but one body. Okay. Many members but one body. We've got all of this together, all of these different working pieces for the purpose of making a working whole. And now we get into the human part, the ego part, where we have our, our, our perceptions of how we or I should work. And let's go to verses 21 through 26. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary, and those members of the body which we deem less honorable, on these we bestow more abundant honor and on our less presentable members become more presentable, whereas our more presentable members have no need of it. But God has so composed the body, giving much more abundant honor to the members which lack. So this is very important. And I, I, sometimes we get lost in Paul's reasoning, but he's basically saying you've got those parts of the body that are very obvious in what they do, and then lots of parts of the body that are not so obvious. Paul is saying here, that there is great honor inherent in all parts of the body, no matter how small a part is. All disciples have this inherent honor. Those who are more out in front, members of this body, have that honor in a very natural way. You see it, it's obvious. So what Paul is saying is we should all strive to find the honor in the other members. Those who are out in front, it's obvious, let it be. But let's make sure we recognize those who are working behind the scenes. Verses 25 and 26. So that there will be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. So all are honored together, so we can all share the sufferings together. And, 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 and Julie, just want to just ask you just a, a, a general question in terms of Christian questions, because here we are, we're doing the conversation, we're, we're doing the talking. How many volunteers are there in that, that work in Christian questions in one way or another? Oh, I'd say there's um, probably around 60. Okay, think about volunteers. that first. Think about that. Do you know who they are? You probably don't. Do you know what the, they do? You probably don't. But you know what the end results are, right? All of this happens because of all of them. 
That's the key. There is great honor. CQ doesn't happen without the other 57. It's not just Rick and Jonathan. That's for sure. (laughs) Especially when it comes to social media and anything with a computer. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, okay, all right, okay. All right, move on. Yeah, let's <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're both uncomfortable right now. <laughs> but see, that's the point, the incredibly valuable point of honor in all places and looking for it. So how does all this work in the real world? Well, that reminds me of uh, 1 Corinthians 1, 26 and 27. I'm just going to paraphrase it, where it says, um, think about what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. You're not influential of noble birth because God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise and the weak things to shame the strong. So it's not that the rich and powerful can't be faithful Christians. It's that when you have everything, you just don't have the proclivity to listen to the gospel message. It's not going to appeal to the ultra ambitious, the ruthless, the wealthy because you don't have the need of the message. It's not going to make you rich or healed or popular. The true gospel offers peace and trust. And here's the key in future promises. So at first glance, that's really seems like it's low in value. So having excess lends itself to pride, but poor people can be prideful too. A great compliment to our discussion is episode 1031. What happens to my Christianity when I go to work? Uh, and it's avoiding the pitfalls of the workplace talk, thinking, and behavior. And so does this humility versus success mean that Christians shouldn't ask for a raise? You know, should we just write welcome on our faces and be doormats? And I know I've got friends who are moms having a really hard time with family members, i.e. teenagers, <laughs> taking their work for granted and being disrespected. Are, are they supposed to just accept it with humility? Well, you know, it's interesting. Remember what Jesus did when he needed to put respect in order. He spoke up and he spoke out. And for parents to be respected for, of their children, absolutely necessary. You, you are doing a disservice to your child by allowing them to be disrespectful. In the workplace, if you've done the work, there is nothing wrong with going and saying, this is, this is the contribution that I make. If, and, and if this is the, the pay grade, then I should be here. There's nothing wrong with that. Now, if you don't get the raise or whatever, then you have to cope with that and say, okay, God's providence has not given me that at this point. Let me see what his providence will bring to me next. But no, there's nothing wrong with asking, but it has to be done in humility. Doesn't mean that you're saying, well, I can't admit if I'm good. No, if you're good, you are. Okay. And that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. But let's make sure we do things in the right, in the right way from the heart out with integrity first and then approach all of those things. So approaching our earthly responsibilities with that mindset focused on the most important things. Let's look at 1 Peter 1, 13 to 16. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Okay, get your mind set, because in the real world, it requires action. What do we have to do? We have to stay the course. Even though you might be dealing with earthly matters, keep them in the perspective of honoring God first and foremost in all things. And we're back to First Peter to, to verify this. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So put it in perspective, stay the course, proceed based on the higher knowledge of sanctified. Sanctified means set apart for a godly purpose. Sanctified actions rather than on knowledge and experience regarding the base things of this world. Stand above the fray. And it's hard to do that, but if we do, we can see so much more clearly. Back to 1 Peter chapter 1. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So in our everyday work world, we must still remain holy holy and full of integrity and humility. That's how we find success. So Julie, success in the world through humility, what do we have? Our second object of success is be willing to be lowly and serve regardless of recognition or a lack of it. I will resist the temptation to be like everyone else and compete on their level because I know the ultimate futility of such actions. My life is accountable to something higher, and I look for success in this world only as God permits. 
That's the key. I look for success in this world as my heavenly Father permits. Whatever he permits, I can glorify him, and that's how I can run hard and fast and be successful in this world with humility. The more we talk about how important humility is, the more it becomes obvious how difficult humility is. What is the end result of all this humility? Will we get what we want from this world because of it? The easy answer to that question is, of course you will. As long as, here's the caveat, as long as you want from your interactions, as long as what you want from your interactions in this world is to honor God in all that you say and do, then you get what you want. The harder answer is to address the fact that our Christian successes often are not what the world defines as their successes. So in many ways, when we talk about success, we may be talking about two different things. Same world, same job environment, same family environment, same challenges, but our definition of success must be clear in our minds. Let's go back to Jesus in the parable. He ends the parable with a concise and eternal lesson. Luke 14, 11. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. It's a powerful lesson, very simple. You humble yourself, you put yourself in the hands of God. He can exalt you however, whenever, versus I'm going to exalt myself and take the risk that my self-exaltation is full of ego and mess and fall miserably. Okay, you know, which one do you choose? I know which one I think I'd rather go with. But here's the thing. The basic principle of this particular parable that Jesus is speaking is actually drawn from Proverbs. Jesus is using the sound principles of the Pharisees' own Jewish heritage in Scripture to show them that his teaching is clearly of God and not from Jesus himself. So let's look at Proverbs 25, verses 6 and 7. Do not claim honor in the presence of the king, and do not stand in a place of great men. For it is better that it be said to you, Come up here, than for you to be placed lower in the presence of the prince whom your eyes have seen. The Pharisees would have been familiar with this proverb and understood how Jesus' story taught this exact thing. So how could they argue? And that's the point. How could they argue when Jesus is using something that was written before they knew who Jesus was? So he's, he's so wise in his approach to get their attention, to teach them how to rise up higher by becoming lower in their own minds. The simple point of the story, we spend our time we spend our time and effort, and, and effort exalting our accomplishments, our position, our influence, our ego. We're building a house of cards that is inevitably destined to fall. Instead, instead, give God the glory. Give God the authority, and then see how your success can unfold. So, Jonathan, as we look at success toward God through humility, just based on how Jesus ends this parable, what do we have? Our third object of success— leave all results in the hands of God. The ability to not obsess over results requires consistent patience and deep faith, and yet it really is an obvious conclusion. Who else but God would you want overruling your results? Think about that. Think, think about the choices that we have. Who do you want controlling your results? Do you want some CEO of some company, or do you want God Almighty? Take your time. Think about it. there is a very definite choice that we need to make to have success toward God with our humility. Leave every result in the hands of God. We can do the work and just let him dictate the result. takes patience sometimes, but it is so worth it. Let's look at Jesus, his own humility, and the unfathomable exaltation that followed his humility. We're going to look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 9, and Jonathan, this will be from the Weymouth translation. Let the same disposition be in you which was in Christ Jesus, although from the beginning he had the nature of God, meaning the spirit nature, he did not reckon his equality with God a treasure to be tightly grasped. Nay, he stripped himself of his glory and took on him the nature of a bondservant by becoming a man like other men. And being recognized as truly human, he humbled himself and even stooped to die, yes, to die on a cross. 
It is in consequence of this that God has also so highly exalted him and has conferred on him the name which is supreme above every other. Think about being given a name that is supreme and above every other name. I don't know about you, but I don't think there's any place bigger you can go. How did Jesus get there? By stripping himself of his previous spirit nature, like you said, putting on the nature of of a man, becoming a man like other men, being recognized as truly human, he humbled himself and he died. There is no more dramatic account of how humility combined with a godly focus can accomplish an impossible-looking earthly mission. Let that sink in. Humility with a godly focus can accomplish an impossible-looking earthly mission. In the eyes of the average person, Jesus seemed to fail. He died on a cross miserably. But in the plan of God, he changed everything. How could he do that? Because he was humble. He did exactly what the Father had him do. We, like Jesus, must leave all results in whose hands? God's hands. That's right. You were off quick on that one. <laughs> in God's hands, as we do the humbling work of serving, just like Jesus. Psalm 116, verses 12 to 15. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits toward me? I shall lift up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. I shall pay my vows to the Lord. Oh, may it be in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his godly ones. So I, what will I render to the Lord for all his benefits toward me? Folks, we should every day be asking that question. What do I give back to God for the incredible blessing he's given me? You know, even if your life is in shambles right now, even if things are falling apart and things are difficult, if you still have your faith and you still have Jesus Christ and you still have the Word of God, you have got great power in your hands. You've got great potential blessing. What are we going to do? What do I render to the Lord for all his benefits toward me? We want to give back. And then verse 15 says, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his godly ones. This doesn't sound very happy. Be, but so, so why? Why does it say that? So, Jonathan, let's just add James 4, uh, verse 10, to round that out, round out that thought. Humble yourself in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. Go ahead. Oh, uh, well, uh, uh, you know, being exalted after you die, that's something to rejoice in. Um, if we live a life of thankfulness and gratitude in the presence of God's children— It'll be contagious, and it'll lift everyone together. And that's another amazing, simple, logical reason for this humility in all that we say and do. Success comes through humility because humility gives us the ability to see and then to act. That's what Jesus did. That's what we need to do. So now, how does this work in the real world? How do we stay focused on God in an environment where such focus can be detrimental. Nobody wants you focusing on God in this world. Julie? Well, for, for a practical example, this makes me think of entrepreneurs and business owners who give back, like where you buy a pair of shoes and a pair is donated to somebody in need. Company profits and the CEO's salary is balanced with giving back. And even small businesses can donate a portion of their profits, or they may not use deceptive advertising or trick the public to get ahead. And here's a thought. One of the best types of employees is a faithful Christian because the employer is going to get a person who will put in an honest day's work, who won't steal, backstab, or be part of office gossip. <laughs> so the getting ahead through humility really does work, but it requires us to be truly focused on higher things because it's so easy to get sucked in by the environment that we are dealing with. So we've got to realize that our lives as sanctified, and again, that word sanctified means set apart for a holy purpose. Sanctified Christians, our lives as sanctified Christians are dependent on us following not what everybody else says, not what we think might be good. It's dependent on us following higher standards. Let's go to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lust, which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. 
You notice how the apostle describes us. I urge you as what? Aliens and strangers. In other words, your, your world is not their world, but you're in it. So glorify God wherever you are. Abstain from those fleshly lusts which wage war against your soul. Keep your behavior, Julie, just like you said before, make your behavior excellent amongst everybody else so they can see somebody who truly does have integrity and a good work ethic and somebody who's got something good to say at every turn. Always remember, always remember who is responsible for our ultimate promotion and serve him first. You know, we all want to get the promotion, right? Well, who's responsible for your ultimate promotion? Well, I think we know the answer to that. First Peter chapter 5, verses 5 through 7. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourself with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Um, therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. I, I especially love that verse 5, when Jonathan read, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. I looked this up, and Thayer's Greek lexicon says that this was a white scarf or an apron of slaves that would distinguish them from the free person. And it encourages Christians to show their subjection one to another by putting on humility. So how do we do that, though? It's a physical act to put on a garment. It's not part of our natural skin. So we make that decision what we are going to wear. And the Greek word clothed here is not just laying a coat over our shoulders. It's to bind or fasten by the tying of knots. So that garment is secure and becomes part of us. We want to make it a practice never to go out without our humility coat. We should have it on in every action of life, whether we're in public or in private. So this idea of humility, as we have been going through this and we begin to, to, to wrap this up, it has a powerful transforming effect on who we are and how we act and what we do and why we do it. And we can see success on the horizon when we do these things and put them in the proper place. So our final success in the world this time through humility, Julie, what do we have? Our third object of success is leave all results in the hands of God. Whether our abilities are ever appreciated or our potential is fully realized, we can still have success in this world by being that person who stands out in the crowd for their focus, kindness, hard work, and integrity. Praise God with your everyday approach and be successful. There you go. Do not let the world dictate to you success. Their perspective is not important enough to make a difference. <laughs> I love that. Well, and that's such a that's such a powerful statement. Their 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 perspective. It's not important enough. Why? Because we're talking about eternity. We're talking about living up to a standard that many people don't even want to exist. But yet there it is, and we have the opportunity to live up to it. This is how we can find success. So one 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 more thing here one more thing you know this is the colombo moment for 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 jesus in this particular circumstance after this parable you might think the host uh, of this gathering who was a pharisee because remember it was about the host dictating who sits where and all of this you might think he was sitting there feeling pretty good like yeah you know i'm pretty strong here in this whole situation after all he seemed to represent the inviter the one who decides where the guest should sit so jesus shares the same humility lesson with him Listen to what Jesus says to him. Now, there's no parable. There is a very direct, strong suggestion on the part of Jesus to this very, very, very influential Pharisee. Jonathan, Luke 14, 12 to 14. And he also went on to say to the one who had invited him, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors. Otherwise, they may also invite you in return, and that will be your repayment. But when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed since they do not have the means to repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. So here you have Jesus saying to that homeowner, condescend to the lower individuals. Go and don't look for re reciprocation. Just give and give because you can, you're blessed, just do it. So the title of this episode is, Can Humility Keep Me From Success? And in thinking about this, I think the answer partially depends, of course, on how you define success. 
um, because ultimately divine favor is the only success that is going to be remembered. And that's so true. And, and, and so when we look at this story, when we look at the parable and the lessons, what we see are some very, very significant things. We're seeing Jesus unfolding the idea of condescending to lower on purpose with humility to be of service as the way to move up. But the moving up is not in accordance with what everybody else thinks. It's in accordance with what the Heavenly Father dictates and provides in our lives. And, you know, we, we learn to do that now as, as Christians. But in the resurrection, for all of these people who are vying for success and jockeying for position, the resurrection will be the great equalizer because it will bring a new set of standards for success. They're all raised up, and all the successes of this world and this time are going to eventually be forgotten, and the only successes that will be remembered are those that give honor and glory to God. Which kind of success do you want in your life? Think about it. Folks, listen, we really do want to hear from you. Give us your feedback or send us your questions on this episode and other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. Also, a big part of spreading the word about our podcast is subscribing to Christian Questions in your favorite podcast channel, like Google, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, iHeartRadio. Wherever you get your podcasts, please rate us and review us. We greatly appreciate it. Coming up next week, coming up next week, am I my own worst enemy? Am I my own worst enemy? We'll talk to you about that next week. <laughs>